chapter 19. I was looking at this. I had to ask Cindy this week, what number? I've lost count. So 65th sermon in John as we've raced through the gospel and uh, learned what John has for us. This is important. We've come now to the last few chapters and uh, we're going to take some time, particularly here in chapter 19. Um, we're going to be at least here at least uh, a month, a little longer. Let's really look at this very key moment in the life of Jesus. His passion, his suffering, crucifixion and death. So we're going to spend several weeks looking at that. What does that mean for us as believers today? So let's turn to John chapter 19, starting at verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would give us wisdom and insight, understanding into your word this morning that we might hear what it has to say to us about our Lord Jesus Christ, that we might, uh, with the help and power of your Spirit, make it part of our lives, part of our beliefs, and give us the faith to truly know and understand what you are teaching us this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Throughout human history, we have honored those who die courageously, who die for a noble cause. We write stories and make statues and establish holidays in their honor. And in our culture especially, we make movies. And what draws us to these movies isn't just the way a hero lives, it's the way a hero dies. And in a sense, death is the final measure of the man. So it's not just how they live, but how they die that makes their stories epic. There was a movie at the box office last year called 300. Critics didn't expect it to do very well, but it was one of the largest grossing R-rated films in history on its opening weekend. It's the movie about 300. Hundred Spartans led by King Leonidas. It's an incredibly violent film, just give you that disclaimer. 
And most of it isn't real. It's a lot of computer-generated stuff, the CGI stuff. But it looks real, and it is very violent. But it's about a battle primarily. And it's about these 300 Spartans led by their king, Leonidas, who resisted the Persians in the Battle of Thermopylae, a real battle based on a true story, and how they fought to the death and how all 300 were eventually killed by this massive Persian army. But they held them off so that Sparta could rally the troops and save the land. Now, I'm not a movie critic, but I think one of the reasons the movie did well, other than drawing 18 to 24-year-old men because of the violence in action, It's because we're mysteriously drawn to a courageous death. That's ultimately was the highlight of the movie was how these 300 Spartans died courageously for what they believed in. And we watch movies like that. We watch movies like Braveheart and Gladiator. And we'll watch them over and over and over again. We're drawn to William Wallace in Braveheart who scoffs at death and says, every man dies, not every man really lives. Or to Gladiator with Maximus Decimus Meridius, who says, death smiles at us all. All a man can do is smile back. And we admire those who live well, but the final test is really how someone faces death. Do they die well? Do they die with their integrity intact? Do they die for a noble cause? Does their death make a difference? And it's hard to measure the way someone dies. But I think it's safe to say that no death was more noble, no death was more courageous than the death of Jesus of Nazareth. And no death makes a bigger difference. So let's take a look. We're just entering that narrative now. Let's take a look at what happens here. But before we get in too far, we need to understand some of the background. We need to understand Pilate's dilemma. If you remember, Pontius Pilate uh, has uh, stood over a trial of Jesus. He was the Roman uh, ruler in the land of Palestine. And he is in a dilemma right now. And so this particular passage is as much about Pilate as it is about Jesus. As we approach the events of the last day of the life of Christ, we come face to face with this fact that Jesus is going to die. He's been tried in the religious court of the Jews under Caiaphas. He's been found guilty of nothing. And nevertheless, the religious leaders want to kill him. The religious leaders don't like him because he descri- described himself as the son of God and he disturbs their power that they have over the people. And as a result, they want to be rid of him. But since they did not have the right of execution, they brought him to Pilate. But he's no political reactionary. Jesus had said to Pilate back in uh, John 18 and last a couple of weeks, uh, Rich and Dave have gone through John, uh, this part of John 18 with you. But he said back then, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, 
my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. So there's no planned insurrection. There's no reason for the Romans to execute him. And we read in Luke 23, parallel passage, then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. They're charged. They never say what he says to stir up the people. They imply that he's an insurrectionist against Rome. And so Pilate questioned him and found out that he wasn't. The Romans have no accusation against him. And Pilate concludes in John 18:38, I find no guilt in him. But Pilate is in a dilemma now. And you have to understand that to really get this passage. Because he has a bad relationship with the Jews. When he first began in Palestine as the governor there, he had screwed up with the Jews again and again. Rome had to send down word for him to shape up or they were going to pull him out. He had irritated the Jews far too much. Now, the Roman law was called Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And the Romans would move into an area and they would subject the people. But this law generally allowed them home rule and a a certain measure of peace. And the Romans wanted to keep their realm peaceful. And uh, they were not really oppressive unless the people were revolutionary. It was sort of, if you go along, we go along. As long as you pay your taxes, everything's good. And uh, they were very good at it. Pilate, on the other hand, had a tough time keeping peace with the Jewish people. And this was true both before him and after him. So much so that in 70 A.D., the Romans had finally have enough and they come in with the 10th Legion and level the place and kill everybody in sight. So they're going to keep the peace one way or the other. But Pilate is the governor now. The people continue with these uh, uh, various kinds of uh, riots and uh, uprisings, uh, minor revolts here and there. He just can't seem to keep things under control. And to make things worse, not only did Rome know he was having a hard time, but that he had capitulated to the Jews on several occasions, and they knew that the Jews had him under their thumbs. He's nothing but a puppet who could be moved wherever the Jews wanted to move him. And they held this over his head, this constant unspoken threat. If you don't do what we want, we'll revolt. And guess who will hear about it? Caesar. And you'll get the axe, either figuratively or literally. And Pilate has essentially been blackmailed by the Jews into executing Christ. The Jews are saying, Pilate, if you don't do what you what we want, you're going to have a lot of trouble. We'll see that the thing that finally causes Pilate to make the decision to let Jesus be crucified is just this pressure. They knew how to get to Pilate and they kept at it until Pilate finally gives in. Now, Pilate has two options. He's a man of some justice. He's pretty smarter. He wouldn't have been placed in this position by Rome. So to his benefit, we should recognize that he has some sense of justice. And the Jews have brought an innocent man to him. And he's faced with uh, two options. He could reason this man is innocent 
and I should let him go. But if I let him go, I'll have a Jewish revolution on my hands and word will get back to Caesar and I'll lose either my position or my head. Tiberius Caesar is quick to act when he saw something he didn't like. So Pilate had the option of doing what was right and losing his job or his head because the Jews would undoubtedly revolt. He also had the option of doing what was wrong, executing an innocent man. And as a result, he would be going against all that he had learned of Roman justice and judgment, and he'd end up crucifying his own soul. In some sense, he did have a morality. He had two choices. He could save his soul or he could save his neck. Now, there's something vague about your soul, but there's nothing vague at all about your neck. And so when it comes down to life or death, chances are you'll try to save your neck. And even though Jesus is innocent and Pilate knows it, saving his neck will take priority. So here he tries one last tack to get the people off his back, to end his dilemma. He's going to have Christ scourged. Our text says flogged. He figures that if he beat and mutilated Jesus, the people would say, that's enough. If he beat and mutilated him enough to make him look like anything but a king, they might not well. They might not uh, hold on to that accusation that he claimed to be a king. So Pilate has him scourged. It's a great word. I mean, it just sounds like what's going to happen. It's hard for us to understand exactly what scourging is, but it's a hideous torture. And that's what brings us to our passage this morning. Starting in verse 1, we start by being told of the suffering of Christ. The suffering of Christ, verses 1 through 3. Well, that's not going to work. Verses 1 through 3. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate's actually attempting another tactic here. Luke 23 tells us that Pilate said, I will therefore punish and release him. He evidently thought that if he mutilated Jesus, the mob would pity him and allow him to set Jesus free. Now, scourging inflicted terrible, terrible wounds. The Bible doesn't describe uh, scourging in detail. It doesn't describe the crucifixion in detail. Uh, but at the time when John is writing this, his readers knew what scourging was and his readers knew what crucifixion was. They saw it regularly and were uncertain about the manner in which the scourging was inflicted. The Romans had made uh, scourging a punishment for numerous breaches of the law. And it was so gruesome an act that a Roman citizen, except in extreme circumstances, was exempt from scourging. You couldn't scourge a Roman citizen because they knew just how horrible this was. Now, the Jewish manner manner of scourging was to lay a man uh, down on the ground, face into the dust and to beat his back. That is unlikely uh, what would have happened to Jesus here. This was a Roman scourging. The Romans carried this out and they would have tied him to a post of some kind. 
his back bare, clothing removed, his back bent in some way to tighten the skin so that the first infliction of those cords, those whips, often having bits of uh, bone or metal tied into them, would inflict the severest possible damage. Perhaps 39 lashes were not told, but that was the Roman ritual. And sometimes the whip tore into the flesh so badly that a man would become almost a human skeleton in his appearance. And it was terrible. And people died from it. Many people didn't even make it to the crucifixion. They would die from the scourging, from the loss of blood. Other people just went mad from the pain. Ancient authorities, as diverse as uh, uh, Eusebius, Josephus, Cicero, they relate that scourging normally meant a flaying down to the bone. Eusebius tells of martyrs who were torn by scourges down to deep-seated veins and arteries so that the hidden contents of the recesses of their bodies, their entrails and organs were exposed to sight. That's what happens to Jesus. They didn't just take him and whip him a little. They flayed him. So there's virtually no skin, not much of anything remaining on his back. Beyond the scourging, if this wasn't enough, they would carry their fun even farther. We read here the Romans, they hated the Jews and they saw in Christ a way to show their contempt for the Jews. He's the Jewish king. He wants a crown. So verse 2, they twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. Now these aren't thorns like rosebush thorns. Thorns in the Middle East run anywhere from three to six inches in length. And you can imagine how they would have uh, dug into his head and some would have stuck outward uh, like a radiant crown. But I'm sure it caused the blood just to pour. If you've ever gotten a cut on your forehead, it just bleeds profusely. Well, you can imagine he has several cuts on his head now. He's bleeding tremendously. And it, this, this carnival continues. It says they arrayed him in a purple robe probably using an old ragged soldier's robes, which were crimson or scarlet, and they would have faded in the sun to sort of a dull purple. Matthew 27 says, tells us they put a reed in his right hand like a, a scepter. Kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. Now, we often think that Jesus bore our sins only when he died. But he also bore our sins in his pain and in his suffering. He was bearing sin even when he was still alive on the cross and before the cross. When he was scourged, he was bearing the punishment for sin. Isaiah 53 says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. These are the stripes. That's what we're getting this morning in this passage. When they hit him in the face, he was suffering for sin. His suffering did not uh, just uh, begin on the cross. It began with all of the punches. It began with the spit and all of the punishment he suffered prior to the cross. 
before we get to the cross, before we get to the crucifixion, there occurs here outside of the palace of Pontius Pilate something degrading and dehumanizing. And what should pain us the most about this story is not that we are capable of this, but that we are capable of doing this to Jesus. And as if Jesus didn't suffer enough, then they throw him before the crowd. And his suffering is made public. We see that uh, verses 4 and 5 in the presentation by Pilate. The presentation by Pilate. Verses 4 and 5, Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Immediately begs the question, if you found no guilt in him, why was he beaten so badly? But he was. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. What the crowd saw must have made some of them faint. David, writing prophetically of the cross in Psalm 22, thousand years earlier, says, Psalm 22, verse 17, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. The scourge had done its work. The flesh had been cut away from Christ's ribs and his back. Add to this the prophetic words of Isaiah in Isaiah 52, verse 14. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. The soldiers had hit him in the face with the reed staff and with their hands. They used that staff as a mock scepter and they beat him until his features were unrecognizable. Pilate had reason to hope that he would succeed. Surely the crowd would be filled with revulsion at the sight of this man just beaten to a pulp. Hopefully that would be followed by sympathy. So Pilate brings him out and shouts to the crowd, Eke homo, behold the man. From the precedence of Greek classical examples, it can be translated something to the effect of, look at this poor man. Pilate is saying, in effect, look at this poor, bruised, bleeding man. Hasn't he suffered enough? And Jesus is, is exposed to the rejection of the world. But John wants us to see something else here. Another strand of thought as these scenes play themselves out. He wants us to see also that Jesus is fulfilling the purposes of God. He's fulfilling the purposes of God. He says in verse 5, and again he'll say in verse 14, which we'll get to in a couple weeks, that what is happening to Jesus here is only fulfilling what God had intended from the very start. John is interested in the details, the happenstance, what seems to be coincidence. He brings out lots of little points that you think, well, it's not really necessary to the story. He brings out words that Pilate utters, words that Caiaphas utters about one man dying for the people. 
And there lies behind an extraordinary truth. He says in verse 5, Behold the man. In verse 14, Behold the king. Isn't it extraordinary that Pontius Pilate is the one saying, Behold the man, behold the king? Even if he's saying it sarcastically, there's a truth there that maybe he doesn't even realize. And John is saying to you and to me, do you understand that this ungodly man actually got it right? That he was the king. He was the Lord of glory. Behold the man, this broken man, this bent man, this bleeding man, this lacerated, torn man, this man for all seasons, this man for other men, this true man, the best man that ever was. And behold him. Behold him as he bleeds. Behold him as he undergoes such punishment and pain. And behold your king. In the account of Jesus' trial, this is probably, for these two chapters, among the most key statements made is the statement by Pilate when presenting Jesus, Behold the man. And I want to dwell on that statement for a moment because there's two aspects of Jesus the man that we need to note here. And first is that Jesus is a real man. Jesus is a real man. In the closing scenes of Jesus' life, the claims of from the beginning of John, chapter 1, verse 14, is vindicated, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we see that here. The presence of God in our suffering is one of the supreme distinctives of the Christian faith. Besides this, most other world religions fall largely silent. And as this passage so eloquently shows us, in Jesus we have a God who enters into our suffering and shares them with us. And as we've seen, his suffering is intensely physical, but it's also relational. He suffers at the hands of others, both Jews and Gentiles. It's not just one or the other that suffers him. We're all responsible. In an age where we talk about different kinds of abuse, and I know some of you have had to live through that, it's remarkable to note that you have the support and understanding of a Savior who has been there. And also his suffering is intensely emotional. It's physical, it's relational, And it's emotional. Pilate's presentation of Jesus is designed to appeal to the pity of the crowd. His appearance went beyond the pitiful, almost to the ridiculous. This broken figure with a tattered robe and this weird spiky headdress protruding sort of grotesquely from his head. And that should touch us deeply. There's almost nothing we dread more than to be thought ridiculous. Nothing so readily penetrates the armor of our self-esteem than mocking laughter. There isn't a whole lot that hurts more than that. And yet it's with precisely that mocking laughter ringing in his ears from the soldier's ridicule that Jesus then appears for the further mockery of the crowd. And two prophetic passages, again, Isaiah and Psalm, Psalm 22 But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. And then in Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men, 
a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. So there's an emotional suffering here. He's despised. We esteemed him not. He's rejected. He's scorned. He's mocked. And when such moments sweep across our hearts and we sort of collapse inwardly when there's this hidden torment of shame or confusion, when the tapes of yesterday's humiliation start playing through our mind, when old shame shows up and reminds us of how bad we really are, there is a fellowship of his sufferings which is wonderfully releasing and reassuring. He is indeed our fellow sufferer. He knows our suffering, our physical suffering, our relational suffering, our emotional suffering, and he shares in all our suffering. He knows it better than we do ourselves. I don't know what you're going through today or this week or next week. I'll know a few of you. But I won't know what's going on with everybody. But I know on any given day, there is a significant amount of suffering that's happening. For some, it's physical. For some, it's relational. For some, it's emotional. Jesus knows it all. Hebrews 12:3 says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Jesus is a real man. He knows suffering. He knows your suffering. Second thing we see is that Jesus is a representative man. He's a representative man. If the first application is in terms of incarnation, God with us, the second application is in terms of redemption, God for us. We note in particular the death of Jesus is a judicial, it's a judicial death. It's a conclusion of a legal process in which charges are formulated and presented and judgment passed. This is not an incidental fact. Calvin noted that centuries ago. He argued it's part of our redemption that Jesus was arraigned before the judgment seat as a criminal accused and condemned by the mouth of a judge to die. And in exploring this truth, we note the charges against Jesus are twofold. First, that of blasphemy brought by the Jewish authorities, and the second charge of treason, that he was an insurrectionist against Rome. That's brought forth in the trial by Pilate. And Jesus dies as a blasphemer and a traitor. But it's precisely these two perversions that are at the heart of human sin. Genesis 3, Genesis 3, 5. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Furthermore, sin is treason. It's an act of rebellion against the rightful rule of a sovereign God. Precisely the charges that we face at the judgment seat of God are the charges Jesus faced at the judgment seat of Pilate. The trial and suffering of Jesus accordingly then assumes a whole new dimension of meaning. 
Pilate disappears from view. Jesus stands before the judgment seat of God. And he comes to that judgment as our representative to face our charges, to stand in our place. The second Adam come to face the accusations which stand against the first Adam. And he took our place and he was condemned for us. He is our representative man. And because he took our place at the judgment and faced our charges and bore our judgment, we go free. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But the story continues because after Jesus is presented to the people by Pilate, we discover that Pilate is still under tremendous pressure by the priests, verses 6 through 8. The pressure by the priests. It says, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take them yourselves and you crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Pilate's plan didn't work. His plan to scourge Jesus, to punish him, and then get the sympathy of the people and release him was now null and void. It didn't work. They looked at him. You know, his appeal had hardly ended with Jesus up there. And the most hardened individuals of all, the text tells us, the chief priests and the officers, seeing this bleeding object of their hate, Start crying, crucify him. This is the first time the word crucify appears in the narrative. And it's interesting to note that it comes first, not from the mob, but from the chief priests. And over and over again, they scream these words, the chief priests leading the whole mob surging in this great cry of monotonous venom, screaming for Jesus' death. Pilate has failed again. His proposal didn't work. And he has this maddened, frenzied, out-of-control mob thirsting for blood. And Pilate's scared. And he knows it's all over for him if he doesn't give in. So in verse 6 we read, He said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. He essentially says, You kill him. He desperately wants to get rid of Jesus. But the Jews are very clever here, the chief priests, because they don't want to get rid of Jesus by themselves because that would let Pilate off the hook. They have Pilate right where they want him. And they're not about to let him get away. They view this as a twofold victory. We get to kill Jesus and we get to control the governor. And so his effort doesn't work. And despite for the fifth time in John, Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. But the Jews are ready for that. Verse 7 says, we have a law. It's in Leviticus. According to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. Now, Pilate knows well this issue. Pilate knows the Jews didn't tolerate any false gods. Two times he's brought false gods to Israel. 
First, the image of Caesar that was on his standards when he first arrived, and then the inscription of Caesar on the shields that he has hung up in Herod's palace. Both occasions, his actions caused a revolt among the Jews, such a severe reaction that he received word from Caesar himself to remove those standards and shields, or he would be removed from office. That don't unnecessarily upset the people. And as a result, Caesar's watching Pilate carefully with regard to this issue. Now, the Romans weren't stupid. They knew that in order to subject the people, you gave them just enough freedom to make them content. You didn't violate their religion. So the Romans let the people worship as they desired, and they didn't offend them with other gods. Now, if you went to Rome, it was a different story. But when Rome came to you, they were much more tolerant. So the Romans let the people uh, worship there. And with this in mind, the Jews are saying, Pilate, remember that law about false gods, the one that almost cost you last time? Well, here it comes again. He's claiming to be the son of God. We don't believe in false gods. This is exactly where Pilate has blown it in the past. The Jews are equally sharp. They know exactly what they're doing. They're putting the pressure on Pilate to get rid of another false god. The last two times, he didn't do as he asked. And at first time, it almost cost him his rule. And the second time, it almost cost him his life. And they're saying to him, you're going to let this one get by again? Not execute who we believe to be a false god? Are you going to let a false god run around among us again? We'll report you to Caesar. And the threat is too much for Pilate. It's an implied threat, but it's a very real threat. They know his weak spot. And Pilate's too afraid to stand up to them, too afraid to do what is right. And so an innocent man will die. The Jews were willing to sell their souls to secure the execution of Jesus of Nazareth. They're willing to lie, and they did. They're willing to blaspheme, and they did. They're willing to sell out to the Romans. And they did. And so the Prince of Life was ground up in the machinery of human spite and pride and cowardice and self-love. And over and against all of this stands the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of truth, which is what he claimed, that his was a kingdom of the truth, a very different kingdom than that in which all these people lived. And if you think about it, it would have been so easy for Jesus to bring these proceedings against him to a shuddering stop, to exercise his authority over Pilate. Even as a man, had he wished, he could have spoken to Pilate in such a way as to persuade the governor that the one thing he could not do was deliver Jesus over to the Jews. But we read in the text, Jesus speaks very little. A few comments here and there, a few phrases. He doesn't say much. He says enough to render Pilate entirely blameworthy for his cowardly caving in to the demand of the people that he be crucified. But he makes no effort to save himself. He had come to die and die he would for reasons none of these people understood at all. To the ancient Near Eastern mind and to the Roman mind, the king was a tyrant. The king was one who was served, whom everybody served. And here's the king who had come not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, if you can remember a few months ago, all the way back to John 10, 
Jesus said there, starting at verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me just as the father knows me. And I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 17, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Five times in John 10, Jesus says, I lay down my life. It's a world of difference between laying down your life and having it taken from you. Jesus says, I have authority to lay it down. The word translated authority there in English is the Greek word exousia. It means essentially willpower. There's two types of power in the New Testament. Dunamis denotes physical power. We get the word dynamite from it. In a sense, it's the ability to do something. Exousia is the ability to not do something. Now, I'm impressed with Jesus' dunamis, his ability to do something. He says, Lazarus, come forth. Few words. And Jesus raises the dead. That's some serious dunamis. He stops the funeral procession in its tracks. He raises the dead with one touch. That's real dunamis, real physical power. And while I'm impressed with his physical power, what Jesus can do, I'm more impressed with his willpower, what he could do but chose not to do. A few years ago, you can remember a big movie was The Passion of the Christ. And much of it was focused on this uh, particular passage. And I remember watching that movie. One of my distinct memories was the taunting and mocking of Jesus by the religious leaders and by the Roman guards. And I remember sitting there watching the movie and I wanted to jump up and start defending him. You know, wait, he's innocent. You're wrong. You're, you're, you're not understanding. The amazing thing is that Jesus didn't even defend himself. Matthew 26, he says, Do you think I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Think about the implications of that statement. He could have aborted His redemptive mission with one call for angelic backup. He could have hit the panic button and the Father would have sent 12 legions of angels. He could have resisted arrest. He could have stopped the trial. He could have prevented his execution. But he didn't. He didn't abort the mission. He exercised incredible willpower and he laid down his life. And he died a noble death, a courageous death. In a strange way, Pilate's own words in verses 4 and 6, I find no guilt in him, end up confirming that Jesus is the Savior. He announces he finds no guilt here, no basis for charges against Jesus, in effect declaring him innocent. (coughs) 
ultimately this will help the whole world know that when Jesus died, he was a perfectly sinless sacrifice. And nevertheless, Pilate condemned him to death. It shows how in keeping with God's plan of salvation, Jesus took our sins upon himself. The innocent was declared guilty so that the guilty could be declared innocent. You see, what happened to Jesus Christ that day long ago, the unjust judgment rendered against him, the false accusations didn't cease when he was crucified. He's been falsely judged ever since. He's been condemned by generation after generation of men and women and usually for the same reasons. And what we see in our text is that men acting as men still act, rejecting Jesus Christ for the same reasons that people reject him today. We'll never appreciate this account of the Lord being mocked and suffering if we first cannot see ourselves and our neighbors in Pilate and in the priests and in the crowds. Why do people reject Jesus today? Why do they refuse to acknowledge him as the king of truth? The same reasons that animated those people on that fateful Friday Long ago, you have to understand that this account of the Lord's being mocked and suffering is a picture of how men and women have always judged and rejected and mocked the Lord Jesus Christ. And you and I would do the exact same thing had it not been for the grace of God. Remember that. You and I would have done the exact same thing had it not been for the grace of God. Because it's all of grace from beginning to end. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Heavenly Father, it's easy to read these this passage, these verses, and get indignant of how Jesus was treated and how he was mocked and hurt and punished and beaten. Think, how could they do that? Don't they know who he is and not realize that we are capable of the exact same thing? That apart from the grace of God, we'd have been the ones holding the whips. We'd have been in the crowd shouting to crucify him. And we don't like that feeling. We don't want to think that we're like those people were. But deep down we know we are. And so, Lord, we need your grace not to be that way. We need your grace then. We need it now. We need it tomorrow. We need it every day. Lord, help us to see our own sin, to repent, and to see the Savior bleeding and dying. The blood of the new covenant pouring out for the remission of our sins. Father, this morning, give us the grace to help us see Jesus. Do this for us in his name. Amen.